Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Aaron Simmons, J. Aaron Simmons in his academic career, and he is a philosopher. He is a professor at Furman University, and he is the current president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society of the USA. He is uh, working on a class with Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity on Kierkegaard, and that is the reason that we are talking today, but it's, you know... My son is named, at least in part, after Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard is one of the more important Christian thinkers in my own biography. Just a little bit about him. So he is a Christian philosopher, and he lived in Copenhagen, uh, in the, mostly in the 1800s. Um, and he is known sometimes as like the grandfather of existentialism. So he was a big influence on... Uh, the people who would make up the sort of the more modern existentialist movement, like Jean-Paul Sartre, etc. And Kierkegaard was really reacting against the organized church Christendom, the kind of merging of church and popular culture or or society or citizenship that he was experiencing during his life in Denmark. And unsurprisingly, increasingly, there are parallels to that in American culture, at least in one half of the country, uh, sort of red state America. Uh, Kierkegaard also 
was really invested in sort of what he called the absurd. There is a part of living a committed Christian life that is not rational. It's not reducible to rational choices. And in this way, he's arguing against people like Descartes and Hegel, uh, some of these big systems of thought that purport to be, you know, ironclad and rational and give us the big answers of the universe. If you are feeling like that maybe has some connections to white evangelicalism in America, uh, I would see how you would think that. So there's a lot of stuff that we can learn in our time and our moment from Soren Kierkegaard. And Aaron has thought about this a lot, and he's here with me to talk through what those are. So yeah, this is a conversation about theology, but you do not have to be have any kind of theological training to enjoy this conversation. Uh, and Aaron does a pretty good job of explaining his terms, naming his sources, etc. So enjoy this conversation with Aaron Simmons. J. Aaron Simmons, thank you so much for joining me today. I got to ask, what's the J stand for? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. So uh, it's it's one of these Southern realities. So my dad, uh, his name is John Carl Simmons. Mm-hmm. And so when I was born, they named me John Aaron Simmons. And so uh, the thought was, well, then I won't be like, you know, J.R. or Junior or Butch or something, which is very much what I would have been had I been just his okay. name. Uh, <laughs> so I've gone by Aaron all my life. Um, but then when I started, you know, my academic career in writing, I wanted to kind of honor my dad. And so I kept That's the cool. J as a kind of reference to him. And also, it turns out there's another Aaron Simmons who got his Ph.D. roughly the same time I did. And earlier in my career, I did a lot more political philosophy and environmental philosophy, and that's what he does. And so there were a couple interviews where I was interviewed for jobs, and they kept commenting about this article they loved of mine, which was oh, yeah. his. And yeah. so I thought, you know, <laughs> I, be- I better uh, help people out with this one. And his work is excellent. And so I thought, I don't want to tar him with whatever nonsense I'm doing. So I, I added the J. <laughs> I don't know if you know Trip and I's mutual friend, Myron A. Penner, also yes. a philosopher. Yeah. Yep. And then there's a Myron B. Penner, who's also a, I don't know if he's a philosopher or a theologian, but they actually disagree quite a bit. And they're like, oh, wow. it's literally A and B, which I just think a is so B. funny. <laughs> that, yeah. that's, if, if one of them had been Myron Thesis Penner and one was Myron Antithes Penner, that would have been way cooler, right? Yeah. And, and then, then we would know. have a kind of a Hegelian dynamic that we could critique via Kierkegaard to pretend to have philosophical humor chops like you and, <laughs> like and Trip. Anyway, so before we get into this, I just I've heard the Kierkegaard scholars that I know pronounce his name Kierkegaard. Yeah, is that correct? Well, correct, of course, is always in scare quotes. Uh, Nietzsche has this great line somewhere where he says that God has not fully died so long as we believe in grammar. And uh, I think when it comes to pronunciations, there's probably some truth to that. So yeah, in Danish, the A-A-R-D is sort of swallowed. So you end up much more in a Kierkegaard. But when I talk to people actually, you know, from Denmark, native Danish speakers, way more of it gets swallowed. So it ends up being in, you know, less Kierkegaard and it becomes more like Kiegel. And so given the fact that every native Danish speaker I've heard pronounce his name was not the thing that the kind of fancy Kierkegaard scholars say. Yeah. I thought, yeah. you know, I'm just gonna, like, I'm from the South. I drive a lifted truck and I love 
this guy's name that means churchyard. And so I still pronounce it Kierkegaard. I should say, though, <laughs> part of why I do that is uh, my Danish professor, when I uh, studied Danish, was very well integrated into the Kierkegaard world. And she was horrified by how bad my Danish pronunciation was. And so she actually made me promise that I would never pronounce Danish terms in, in public. In <laughs> right. She's like, Please don't do that because people will know I trained you and it will look horrible on me. So oh, for her, uh, I, I yes, Kierkegaard is entirely fine with me. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, and any of those are, it seems right. I'm certainly not going to start calling him Kierkegaard. <laughs> That's it, there's a zero percent chance of that happening. It, it and again, I'm I'm probably messing it up too, right? It, it sure. It's just this weird. It's like all of the consonants kind of disappear somehow. And this is why, yeah, I, I read Danish though not great, and my pronunciation of Danish is horrid. And so I go out of my way not to pronounce Danish uh, and embarrass myself in front of all the scholars who are really, really good at it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I love that. But you are the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society in the United States. <laughs> I, I, I like the but uh, preface there. <laughs> Despite your idiocy, they Despite, somehow. <laughs> well, it's a pronunciation, you know, handicap. I think we can. Uh, we're not going to judge you too harshly. I, I want to say two things before we we dive in here. The first is that. You are involved in a reading group with Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity going through Kierkegaard. Yeah. And uh, if we have time at the end, I, I'll ask you a little bit about that group. But mm -hmm. in case people don't get all the way to the end, I just want to flag that. There'll be yeah. a link to that in the show notes. If you are interested in participating in that, those reading groups that Trip does are phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just like very affordable, very well thought out, serious academic content and it's it's kind of a paradigm shifting, honestly, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm excited. We actually just recorded our first session this morning, uh, which will obviously air once the class gets going. And it is accessible for people who've never heard his name before, though hopefully engaging and compelling to people who have written books on his thought. So yeah. it, it should be a lot of fun. Um, anytime Tripp and I get to talk about stuff that we love, the jokes are fast and furious. The nineties music references are frequent. Yep. Yep. Uh, and occasionally there's some really, really good philosophy that happens along the way. So I'm excited about it. I I really hope people will sign up. Cool. And then the other thing I want to say too, is that, so most listeners probably know that my son Soren is named in part after Soren Kierkegaard, by which I mean, I named him after Soren Kierkegaard, but my <laughs> wife probably didn't. <laughs> well, so you talk about you pronunciation. Know? My son, when he was born or, or, you know, we were expecting him, I said, look, I've always liked my initials. J-A-S. I mean, it's jazz. This is cool. I want his initials to be J-A-S. I want to pass on the John from my father down, mm -hmm. but I don't want him to be a junior. And so the two that I thought were just awesome A names were John Atticus, which is what we ended up calling him after Atticus yeah. Finch. Yeah. Um, the other was Kierkegaard's middle name, which I'm going to, again, botch the pronunciation, which is basically Abye. He'd be the only one ever, right? Yeah. And the laughter and disdain from my wife to that suggestion was yeah. really quick. Um, yeah. So, so we went with that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but despite the fact that I named my kid after this guy, I think it's going to become clear to listeners why I did not pursue a career in philosophy, even though that's what I got my undergraduate degree in. I'm not a good philosopher. I'll probably butcher 
things about Kierkegaard that I think I know that I got wrong, but I will just say he's been important in my life at multiple seasons. And I would, I would just autobiographically, and I, I'm going to ask you the same question before we sort of get into the meat of our conversation. The two times where he's been most helpful to me, I would, I would say are when I was a college kid first struggling with any kind of doubt and, you know, critiques from outside Christianity. I was an evangelical 17, 18 year old who went to a secular university as a philosophy major. And I had to, you know, there's a certain sort of developmental process that comes with that territory. And I was also like an angsty emo punk rock kid and uh, a blossoming songwriter. And Mm -hmm. I just found, especially in Kierkegaard's journal excerpts from his early 20s, just such a kindred spirit. And the fact that he could ground that angst in Christian faith uh, gave me some kind of hope, you know? And what's funny is I think that I was recognizing then, this is, you know, 20 years ago, so just like 2001, 2002, 2003, I was recognizing then the kind of rot that had been growing within white evangelicalism, but it was not mm-hmm. nearly as clear as it is now. Yeah. And then, so I would say, as you could probably guess, the second time that he's been important to me is basically in the post-Trump era of, of mm-hmm. Christianity within America, which also coincides with my own increasing doubt along epistemological lines, like, and metaphysical lines, like what could I possibly know about God or Christianity and how could I be confident about what does or doesn't exist and what's resurrection about? And what about all these other religious, you know, sociology and, and group psychology and how much we deceive ourselves and, you know, all these modern sort of science based natural doubts that a person, a person of sufficient intellectual capacity that's paying attention in the 21st century necessarily comes up against. Plus yep. the rot and degradation of American Christendom. And so, I mean, you're you're nodding and smiling. You know exactly how this is going to tie oh, yeah. into Kierkegaard. And if, listener, if you don't know how this ties into <laughs> Kierkegaard, then you are in for a treat for this conversation. So those are kind of my two autobiographical touch points yeah. with him. And, and I feel like he's so important to me. Even though I don't read him mm-hmm. much at all, he's very hard to read. It's like the kind of thing in honestly your reading group that you're doing that is the way to read <laughs> Kierkegaard is with a group of people at least a professor even better to have you and Trip kind of bouncing it off dialogically with each other. So yep. that's really cool and I would again recommend that to people. But I want to know Aaron for you what's the what's Kierkegaard's autobiographical significance in your life? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting though I do this professionally your your account of your own autobiographical sort of epistemological well is really quite similar to my own. So I'm actually a fourth generation Pentecostal out of the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee. My grandpa was a Pentecostal pastor and so I was raised in white evangelicalism or what I would describe as what became white evangelicalism. Um, I think there's a complicated and interesting uh, story about Pentecostalism and evangelicalism running in sort of parallel ways and then intersecting at at unfortunate times. But it was being raised in that space by two uh, parents who were both professors. My dad's a professor of art and my mom was in education. 
so that I never saw my Christian faith, despite being in this you know, white evangelical context, it never was anything that stifled thinking, that shut down the life of the mind. If anything, I was raised to think that thinking well was part of living Christianly. So when I went off to college, um, I actually studied physics and then history and encountered Kierkegaard actually in grad school. But when I was an undergrad, Kierkegaard showed up to me as this name, you know, alongside Nietzsche <laughs> as, as these existentialist like twin dangers, the, the Scylla yes. and Charbotus of Christian faith, right? <laughs> yes, and, you right. know, Nietzsche's the guy who's like throwing his middle finger up at everything that's God. And Kierkegaard saying, no, we can talk about God, but then introduces nothing but irrational stuff that's going to erode your you know commitment. And so I admit I was kind of wary and it was via Francis Schaeffer that I kind of developed this wariness um, who famously describes Kierkegaard as like the beginning of the end of Western Christian rational engagement. We might need to do a sidebar on Francis Schaeffer <laughs> before we get in. I think it's actually really good context. And yeah, I think it's one of the most it's one of the less understood aspects of the kind of intellectually founded anti-intellectualism of evangelical right. thought right. where it's like you, you, you give a bunch of evangelicals a soundbite about worldview and then mm -hmm. they think that they understand the history of Western yep. thought. Yep. And, and this is the, the, well, that's the danger with worldview thinking as it has come to be understood, right? Yeah. Is you can summarize the complexities of embodied cultural history in a paragraph, right? Or, or a chapter, if you're going to be really expansive. Yeah. Now, I will say just as a, a footnote to our sidebar, uh, if anybody wants to read really good Schaefer, I highly recommend his little book, Pollution and the Death of Man, which is fabulous, published actually only a couple years after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which was the beginning of the modern environmental movement. Hmm. And he actually comes out fully in favor of environmental stewardship. In my opinion, it was a missed opportunity for white evangelicalism to become like the clarion commitment to creation care, as they call it, or you know, climate change legislation. But they missed the opportunity and instead read the books of his. I wish they had skipped. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, how yeah, should we then live, et cetera? Yeah. Which I guess if we were going to look for something good in that space, it's the idea that thinking matters to Christian life. Yeah. And yeah. arguments are important for, you know, walking well. Right. Yeah. And, and I think he encourages both of those things. Um, and lots of people have benefited very deeply from that. And I probably did yes. as well. Yeah. The people who kept going with it yeah. and continued to think deeply. It's the way I've, I've heard Schaefer's arguments though, and his, his pithy stuff just sort of weaponized the sound bites basically. And that's so, the problem. Like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we know that like, we don't need to engage them. They're just coming from a different worldview. They have a secular worldview. So we know that they're wrong and like, yeah. we'll just do our thing. I, uh, I, I view it as a, <laughs> it's sort of like a apologetics uh, meets Batman episode, like back in the fifties. Pow, it's, bam. You know, pow. Yeah. yeah. It's like they, they yeah. hit you with the problem of evil. You go free will defense. Boom. Right. And so you learn all this <laughs> stuff kind of as this like defensive battle to make sure you don't really have to listen. Yeah. And I know uh, that there will be listeners who get very upset and say, look, this is not a dismissiveness toward 
serious, substantive, hardcore apologetics. I think that stuff is legit. Mm-hmm. I am critical of a lot of it uh, in, in my professional capacity for various reasons. And it actually is anchored in some of my Kierkegaardian you know, commitments. So I encountered Schaefer. Kierkegaard was a danger, got to grad school, and in grad school, took a course on romantic irony. And in that class, we read Lord Byron and Jane Austen and, you know, the the Schlegel brothers, all kinds of stuff. And then we read this weird book called Either Or by Kierkegaard. And I was admittedly going into it thinking, you know, why do I need to read this? This is not the stuff I do. And what I found was a rich panoply of voices and textures and disciplines it was humorous, but it was serious. It was sad and yet joyful. And it was like human experience somehow put into words. Mm-hmm. And then there were all these different people. So Kierkegaard writes under pseudonyms very frequently. And yes. in doing this, he's not trying to like, you know, hide from the public. He's actually trying to say, we always write from somewhere. We think from somewhere. And where is that somewhere? Our life. So we, we think and write as we live. So what he tried to do was write if he were the person who lived these different ways. And so Kierkegaard became powerful for me when I was a, you know, Christian college grad heading off to the, you know, evils of secular uh, graduate school. And Kierkegaard, in some ways, you made it possible for me to maintain my Christianity. Because yeah. what I found there was not the defensive, combative, you know, load up your, you know, gird up your loins with these arguments. It was, hey, let's live into Christian faith because it matters to do so. And it's risky. And, oh, you've got doubts. You know what? That's part of human existence. Let's, let's cultivate that into humility and then show hospitality in discursive ways and moral ways. And suddenly my Pentecostal affect laden tradition, man, that resonated with Kierkegaard's account of faith as this passionate engagement with a personal God. And yeah, you know, I, I was hooked and, and I was like, well, shoot, I can ask all the questions that keep me up at night. I can ask those for the rest of my career if this is what I develop as my specialty. And so that's what I went into. Now, Ooh, I like it, that. Yeah. I like that from a brass tax uh, career perspective. Right. Because if you uh, <laughs> like if you if you become like, I don't know, uh, Wayne Grudem, systematic theology for Baptists yeah. specialty, you better not change your mind, man. You're in trouble. <laughs> You're in it's, trouble. If you yeah, change the, your mind on any of that stuff, you are going to have to find a new line of work. Well, or, you know, especially in the neo-Calvinist space, right? You, you'd better cling hard to the idea that God's plan was for you to change your mind in this particular way. So you oh, don't sure. actually have to change anything. Right. <laughs> like, Oh, that's it, good. Yeah. It's a weird move. I guess I just mean, I mean, you're, you're talking theologically. I'm talking about like in terms of donors and trustees oh. and <laughs> boards, you're going to get yeah. and fired. No, that's if you exactly change right. Your mind. Yeah, that's right. My, my, and, and to be honest, you know, even beyond Kierkegaard, I've got several friends, very close friends, whose stories include getting fired and things because yeah. of these sorts of commitments. Oh yeah. It, it's, yeah, so you, it's weird. You picked very wisely. 
Yeah. Well, and I'll I, choose and the guy who says question everything and re and <laughs> doubt everything and doubts are a part of faith. I'll I'm, pick that I'm guy. always good, right? Now, it's come at some cost, right? I mean, there were universities hmm. that I interviewed at, Christian schools, that I, in lots of my early life, would have dreamed to be at yes. as a faculty member and <clears throat> went and interviewed and was basically told uh, that I was dangerous to the faith of their students. Oh, totally. And, yeah. you know, at, and the thing is that's weird about that is, they're right. I am dangerous to the faith. Not me like Simmons, but, no, but he this is, yeah. mode of living. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is dangerous stuff, but it's dangerous, I think, in all the right ways, kind of yes. like Jesus was, right? Where yes. it's, oh, you've gotten complacent in your self-sufficient theology. Yeah, maybe that's wrecked by the idea of kenosis. Maybe, oh, yeah, you know. yeah. Or, oh, so you're, you're writing blog posts about how Trump is actually Christ-like. Maybe we should have something that's dangerous to that kind of a faith. <laughs> okay. It's well, and it's it's weird. So this year, so to, again, very much mirroring your own, just with different career choices. I should note, though, for listeners, I, I was also a professional musician for quite a while, though never a songwriter. Um, so yeah, had we met earlier in our lives, there might be this man. Kierkegaard heavy, uh, you know, band that came out of it. Uh, oh man, <laughs> would have been. We a could ball, have started right? a. We could have started a hardcore band called Fear and Trembling. Oh, good Lord. Yes. That, that would I'm have sure been, that's already a band. That's a great it's gotta, name. It's got to exist, right? That so exist. <laughs> I would say Kierkegaard mattered to me in two ways. One, he mattered when I was 22, 23 and trying to not just figure out what I was going to do with my life, but figure out who I wanted to be as a life. And suddenly Kierkegaard said, hey, those are questions you don't have to answer by 24. Th those are questions mm -hmm. that we spend our life answering. Right. Yeah. And so that was powerful. And I continue to cling to that at 44, wrestling with still this question of becoming. And now with yeah. a son who's 12, how do I raise him and who do I want to be for him? And then the other time, just like you, it's been the last uh, four or five years as I've come to the point where fighting from within evangelicalism eventually just got too emotionally taxing. And so I eventually, with the election of Trump, decided I'm not an evangelical anymore, even though I don't think anything changed in my own commitments. It was just, yeah, I, I can't let my identity be associated with what that word now signifies without qualification. Mm -hmm. um, again, we, we recognize the William Barbers out there who are confessional evangelicals, but doing yeah. something very different. But that also appeals to the racial dynamics in our. Yeah, he, he has some history. cover by being black. I think it, it changes that, some of the the term, right? And well, progressive black evangelical, evangelical is just a different. It's just it's a, a different, different designation than white evangelical. Yeah, a different thing. So, so yeah. yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm fighting those battles too, and and I do still attend a Assemblies of God Church, but you know, part of why I go there is after getting asked to leave five other churches, the pastor here is like, look you know, let's learn together about how to minister to people who all need Jesus, right? And yeah. what that looks like from me as a hopeful universalist, hard, you know, progressive political postmodernist, and him as a kind of center-right, you know, Christian college-trained pastor who does have his career wrapped up in a certain kind of power structure. Yeah. It's very different. But he said, hey, come on. And so I've taught small groups and classes and it, it's been fantastic. And so I, I say that as a way of saying just because one is at a white evangelical church does not mean one is a white evangelical. 
Totally. Uh, I'm definitely trying to navigate that complicated and fraught space. But yeah, everything I've written for the last couple of years about Kierkegaard has been, we are not listening to what the attack on Christendom means. And it's not just Kierkegaard, it's Bonhoeffer, it's Martin Luther King, it's Simone Weil. Like we've got plenty of Christian resources for thinking differently about nationalism as an antichrist. And how we fight that nonsense, I think, is every bit our present day task as not just Kierkegaardians, but I would say as people of good faith, whatever yeah. that faith then involves. So, Well, so I was, you know, I was thinking of having you kind of give us an overview of his thought, but I think we'll just do it as we go. All right. So explain what you need to explain about Kierkegaard's <laughs> perspective yeah. as we get to each of these five points. So it worked out very well. You you had these ready to go, but I asked right. you like, you know, what I'd love to do with Kierkegaard because the show is not super theological of a show, mm-hmm. uh, not in terms of like, not the way that Tripp's show is, where it's right. like people who have been to divinity school largely and, you know, they understand the name drops and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, you know, this is like a show for people with a college degree, generally speaking, but not necessarily a ministry degree. Right, right, right. So I thought, well, can we get, can we do like a listicle thing? Like, what are the things we can learn from Kierkegaard? And you're like, well, I got this five point thing I just sent to Trip yesterday. <laughs> I was like, that's great. Those five work. So we're going to spend about 10 minutes on each of these. And then if we have a little time left over, I'll have you preview a bit more of that reading group with Trip. So the first one here, you, you've kind of already touched on it a little bit with your own story. You say that Kierkegaard reminds us that faith is about lived commitment, not simply about right belief. And those terms right there, yeah. lived commitment versus right belief, are really at the kind of the beating heart and center of this entire podcast and the community that's developed around it. Yeah. So we're on board, but let's hear about that from yeah. this perspective. And it's powerful that that be a space where community develops. And so you don't have to have Kierkegaard for that to be the case. But I think he's an important resource that people might benefit from in in compelling ways. So here's the thought. Kierkegaard gives this example in a a work called The Concluding Unscientific Postscript. And he's writing there again under a pseudonym. But he says in there, The goal is not just to affirm the truth of Christianity, right? These propositions about theism, but instead it's to somehow be in the truth. And he gives this example. He says, imagine you've got person A, Myron A versus Myron B, and A uh, holds a correct, quote unquote, commitment, has the right propositional claims about who God is, about the divinity of Christ, about, you know, all the right things that are canonized in creeds, et cetera, and goes to church, you know, every time the doors are open. The problem is uh, this person does it in such a way that, you know, she's always struggling to figure out do I really care about this? And the answer seems to be, no, it's more a matter of this is just what we do. This is just the commonplace social identity for people like me. We hold these views because if we didn't hold these views, we wouldn't be part of the they that we are. On the other side, we have person B and she is, you might say, possessing less of the true propositions, holds different beliefs, maybe worships a different God. But in doing this, 
goes then to the you know place of worship with the full passion of her interiority, gives everything to it, grounds her life in the hope that is found in that relation. And Kierkegaard says, look, which one has truth? Which one's living in truth? And it's not the one who has the right Christian beliefs, <laughs> right? Now, that dichotomy is, of course, a false dichotomy. Of course, Kierkegaard thinks the best place to be would be loving the quote-unquote true God truly, right? But what's so powerful here is the idea that faith, we often think of as, oh, are you a person of faith? And what we mean by that is, can you say yes to the faith statement articulated by this university or this institution or this church? And we do then the same exact thing, by the way, politically. So faith, I'm going to mean it always as a much more expansive term. Uh, in fact, 59% of Republicans recently said that belief that the election was fraudulent and that Trump actually won is now required to truly be a Republican. 59% in a recent poll. So the idea that it's saying yes to the following assent statements is what makes you a person of faith, right? Is precisely what Kierkegaard challenges. Now, he doesn't challenge that by saying, like Francis Schaeffer would argue, belief doesn't matter, hold whatever you want. Hey, just do it with all you got, right? That's not Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is in many ways a very orthodox Lutheran Christian, influenced deeply by Moravian pietism and these sort of influences coming out of Romanticism. But his commitment is, look, faith is, in the way I define it, it's risk with a direction. So what is hmm. faithfulness? It's Faith is risk with a direction. Risk with a direction. Wow. And, right. That and is what, cool. Isn't that a different way than faith is, yes, saying to a bunch of propositions that make sure your social identity is now not problematic, right? And the reason that we've, I think, erred on the side of right belief is there was this kind of movement in the social gospel movement after uh, the kind of advent of theological modernism. There was this time in early mid 20th century where basically it became the case where Christianity to many was nothing other than a kind of good moral life. Jesus was just a moral teacher and you know, people even like C.S. Lewis, who I respect very highly in lots of ways, um, disagree in others. But Lewis has this, you know, famous, in fact, Tripp wrote a book uh, echoing this, where, you know, Jesus is either lunatic, liar or Lord, right? Because it can't just be a good moral teacher. It's got to be Lord. So because of that milieu, there was this return to a kind of enlightenment rationalism Schaefer was a good example of that turn where we need to make sure that our faith is actually these argument resulting propositions that are, you know, correspondingly accurate and appropriate to a very particular interpretation of the Bible. The irony, of course, is whose interpretation, <laughs> right? So immediately any of those moves were nested in what we would call hermeneutic complexity. And that's exactly where, where Kierkegaard jumps in with the whole writing from pseudonyms thing. Yes. Right. So if you can, if you can get your head around 
the fact that he could come up with four separate lenses on the same mm-hmm. question from four perspectives uh, in film. This is called the the Rashomon effect mm-hmm. after the the famous Kurosawa film where he plays the same event over from three different characters' perspectives in, in 90 minutes or whatever. Yep. So if you can get your head around that, then that's sort of putting flesh to the idea that, well, whatever we think is just like the obvious interpretation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of these texts, be it the Bible, the creeds, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the basic doctrinal statements, is never just the obvious thing. And that right. and that's and that's the particularly pernicious bit about evangel- white evangelicalism yeah. seeing being ahistorical and acontextual. Yeah. It denies that it has a particular perspective. Cause because it might be that they're right. It might be that what they're saying is true, right? The problem is Are we, though, able to have the requisite humility about the fact that what we're saying is already being said in the context of other people saying stuff? Yeah. And in fact, I would encourage your listeners immediately upon finishing uh, listening to this uh, podcast, go on YouTube and search for David Foster Wallace. This is water. It is a 20 minute graduation speech that he gave to Kenyon College. It's the most profound thing that you could do with 20 minutes of your day. And what he does is simply make this point. It's what you think's obvious isn't obvious. It might be right, but it's not obvious. And you've got to live into that decision. And that's why for Kierkegaard, faith is lived commitment. It's not just I'm committed to X. It's how do I make my commitment to X activated as the orientation of my hope? the goal of my striving and the content of my becoming. That's what this is about. Right belief matters. Kierkegaard never is the anti-rationalist he is made out to be, but he does think faith is about lived activity. And I think he's right. I mean, the simplest thing is just the part where Jesus says, even the demons believe Right. Well, it, it, well, that's right. I, I tell a lot of my uh, friends who will talk about things like, you know, wanting truth and only want truth. He was like, then read the phone book. <laughs> like it, it's all true. <laughs> so if you want a book with no spin, not affected by Fox or MSNBC or whoever you currently hate, go read the phone book, pick up the white pages and just read it and memorize it. But of course, what a bland, miserable life. Right. right. So it's not just truth that matters. What matters is that we are invested in truth in a way that then invites living truly. And that's the thing Kierkegaard really powerfully offers to all of us. The angle that I'd like to just introduce, most listeners will have heard this previous episode. It's about, I don't know, 10 to 15 episodes back from when this will air. Uh, But it's with my friend Heather Griffin. And uh, it's called Bible Truths, Sincerity Culture, an evangelical instatrust or something like that. Mm. I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the notes. But her kind of thesis that I think puts some explanatory power around why this is the case in, today in particular in white evangelicalism. So she's not speaking to the Danish church of the 19th right. century. Right. But it's like there is, I can't do it justice in a couple minutes, but basically there is a high understanding of common sense So there's a low view of truth claims Mm -hmm. and there is a low bar for spiritual maturity Mm. and 
the there's probably a few other things in that mix, but those things combine to really like, oh, you're a good American Christian citizen who owns a home and is reasonably kind to people. You've mm-hmm. basically arrived. Yeah. There's yeah. no Catholic saints. There's no like heroes. We really look, like the heroes are Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. He's like a preacher who preached to more people. Yeah. Or, or Francis Schaeffer, who in or fact Francis was Schaefer. on the cover of Christianity Today, you know, decades ago as our Saint Francis. Right. You know, the the idea of these saints are these people spreading the gospel. Yes. Or making it accessible in terms of rational discourse. Yeah. Right? All of whom remind us that we are essentially correct without much work about the deepest uh, questions of the universe. So yeah. I, I would recommend people check out that episode. I know a lot of people have already listened to the episode three or four times that's because fantastic. it's so rich. I'll, I'll link to it. But that's an angle that's new to me as, mm-hmm. you know, within the last six months that I wouldn't mm-hmm. have had in my sort of lexicon for, well, how how come we are like that yeah. right now? Like what's operating under the surface? So I would recommend that. Well, and another way to think about this, which is to ground this, and this will actually pick up on uh, some of the other points that we'll, we'll look at in a minute, but we are, especially white evangelical culture, but I'd say society as a whole right now is nested in the idea that certainty is the only thing that matters when it comes to action, right? And this, of course, shows up across the political spectrum, but I think it's perhaps a little bit more insidious when it's coming from within those whose certainty claims are also now vested with with God's authority, right? So when you're claiming not only we're certain that P, but we're certain that P because God, you've now made two ridiculously strong moves that are rhetorically almost indefensible, right? There's nothing you can say back to that. And this is why Richard Rorty says of religious discourse altogether, it stops conversation. Because what do you say back when it's, but this is what God says? He's like, well, shoot, what you're either right or wrong, but I don't know how the conversation moves forward, right? And then two, it creates what we say a fecund or a rich soil for conspiracy theory. Because if you are certain that P, then evidential refutation of P is a test of your faith, right? So you have to stand against the most clearly presented overwhelming empirical data, well, it has to be a conspiracy because I can't be wrong because if I'm wrong, then this whole structure fails and the whole structure is so theologically laden that this is a a attack and a a front directly on God. And this is what Kierkegaard actually says when he's 22 years old. He says the giant colossus had to fall. And he means Christendom as this context of certainty. It has to break because so long as we're there, we will do exactly what we they are doing. Become conspiracy minded insular, indifferent to the suffering of others, reject humility as a sign of weakness, and see loyalty as, in fact, the signal of theological commitment rather than the signal of probable idolatry, (laughs) right? It's it's staggering. That's so interesting because that does give a nice light on the loyalty to Trump thing and the fact that for Trump, it was manifestly all about loyalty. 
Exactly. And, right. and to what extent does a large chunk of American Christendom basically operate on a loyalty structure, not mm-hmm. even a truth structure? That's right. You know, uh, because like loyalty structures, like, okay, so you're describing a, well, it's all about right belief. Mm-hmm. And Kierkegaard and, and you and I say, no, faith is like more than right belief and better and more important. Yep. It's about lived commitment. Yep. But I would still take right belief over mm-hmm. it's all about arbitrary loyalty. Yes, that, that's but right. If that's what we've actually come to, that we're but not even about them. right belief anymore because right. this guy obviously cheated on m- multiple wives and obviously yep. lies all the time. You don't even have to look very hard mm-hmm. to find it. Okay, so it's not about right belief anymore like it was in right. the 90s. Right. It's now just about loyalty to the yep. good team versus the bad team. Yes. And even though Trump's behavior is the bad team, he tells us and he speaks to us in a way that we know he's loyal to the good team. So we need to be loyal to him. And it's like, it's even worse than right belief. That's exactly right. The the thing that makes this so intractable is it's loyalty held by people who think the loyalty is the sign of right belief, right? Because they've all been raised in the eighties and nineties context of right belief, stand against secular humanism, stand against, you know, the stuff that's taking away our Bible and the right to prayer in schools. And so you create this kind of culture war. And when you create the culture war, you also now invite the idea that anyone who's disagreeing with your commitments are what we would call propagandists, right? They're mm-hmm. the people trying to deceive you, trying to distort things. So then when you get, you know, Fox News and Trump and Al, which, again, is not a thing Trump produced. It's got a 30, 40 year history that made Trump possible. I mean, let's be clear. He's the result of a thing, you know, uh, and caused other things. Then, Right. So the idea is it's not people who then sit around saying, screw truth. I'll take Trump. What they're saying is Trump's the only one telling me truth. Right. Because the echo chamber and epistemic insularity had been so well crafted that then think about it. Who are the news stations who for decades have been claiming they're the ones who really care about truth? Fox. Right. They're fair and balanced. Yeah. Nowhere else is saying they're fair and balanced because the claim to be fair and balanced is an obvious rhetorical move to convince your audience that you aren't doing what everybody else does. But in making that move, now you can get away with doing what everybody else does poorly. (laughs) So it's this really smart inversion. It's terrifying and it's threatening to our democracy. Evil genius kind of brilliance. Yeah, man, it, it is smart. And the way I think we fight it is not with better arguments. That's failing. Right. Oh, that's. For sure, not working. You're not going to win with evidence. (laughs) The only way that we fight this, in my opinion, is to recognize that their faith, too, is not really about right belief, despite what they say. It is about loyalty, and loyalty is anchored in lived commitment. So when we understand the dynamics of faith that someone like Kierkegaard makes visible to us, we can get better at navigating the affective embodied responses that we actually see playing out on behalf of those we wish we could refute. But refutation is not a thing that works anymore. Yeah. Maybe relational lived commitment that understands the context in which they find themselves. Maybe that's a better way forward. 
Oh, it ha- it has to be a better way forward. That, so I'm I'm going to jump around uh, the order of the ones you sent me because I just yeah. feel like this is leading so well into the fifth one, originally mm-hmm. the fifth one, which is Kierkegaard models what it looks like to see humility yeah. as the condition of confidence. Let me say that again. Humility is the condition, or we might say precondition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of confidence. Yeah. And Trump embodies the opposite of humility. I mean, literally, right. it's like his entire mm-hmm. business and rhetorical strategy. And humility has really, in, in those more Trumpist circles, I'm thinking of the writing of David French at the Dispatch, who knows mm-hmm. that world much better than I do, that humility is really the thing that's gone out the window yeah. there. One one of the main things that's gone out the window. And so, not that this is a conversation about Trumpism, but it just, mm-hmm. it it clarifies the point it is sort of the opposite of what a scientist in theory is doing is like soaked in humility and we have to retest and I have my own perspective, but five other scientists will challenge it and hopefully they come to the same conclusions. And you know, that it's that kind of opposite way of knowing. So um, can you pick up on this idea that, that humility is the condition of confidence? Yeah. So Kierkegaard found himself in a situation where, and this is part of why our conversations about Trumpism are not actually a distraction or a deviation from a conversation about Kierkegaard. Right. Kierkegaard found himself in a context where the established church, as he called it, was not just a theological institution. It was also a civic, social, and political one. So Mm -hmm. to be baptized into Christianity as an infant was also to then obtain citizenship in Denmark. Yeah. State church. Yeah. It's state church. And, And that reality created for Kierkegaard a real challenge because this then meant, he thought, well, faith was a thing like we've already been discussing. It wasn't even something that you developed later in your life once you found some sort of conversion. It was the thing that you took for granted as the background for living such that now you didn't have to give it any more thought. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it was very much the sort of springboard or, or jumping off point. And as a result, the established church then had to navigate, as all social institutions do, the realities of social power, of influence, of esteem, privilege. And so what it looked like to be somebody who was well-esteemed in the church was also now to be somebody who was invested in the workings of social power. So Kierkegaard's critique on or a critique of the established church, what he eventually calls the attack on Christendom. He said his whole task was to bring Christianity back to Christendom. His attack on Christendom was at some level a attempt to erode the confidence by which they thought that their perspective on the world was the framework in which Christianity then could be read. So it was kind of like saying, of course we're Americans, And that's why we're Christians, right? And of course, Kierkegaard would say something like, now, wait a minute. (laughs) Being a Christian means all other allegiances are radically secondary and problematic. All other loyalties are now temptations to idolatry because we will, in fact, abandon what it looks like to see faith, not just as a condition, but as a task for a lifetime. 
And so what he does is develops the idea of humility in a bunch of different ways. But my favorite is he talks about the idea that this is in late books, like practicing Christianity. He'll talk about the idea that to be united with Christ is to find Christ in lowliness. In other words, you find Christ in the widow, the orphan, the stranger, not in the grand exalted poobah speaking from the pulpit, who in fact was just deploying social power. Yeah, I mean, a cursory reading of the Gospels would reveal this to be a a central factor in Christianity. But of course, a lot of these Christian nationalist evangelical churches do tend to stay out of the Gospels and stick to Paul and stuff like that. But that's that's another day. But you're exactly right. Kierkegaard's idea, and we could even see this with our, our hardcore band, Fear and Trembling. The whole idea here, of course, is quoting Paul, who says, work out your faith in fear and trembling. Notice that doesn't say work out your faith with certainty and absolutism, (laughs) right? So Kierkegaard distinguishes two churches. Uh, I actually just wrote a paper on this that is available to anybody who's interested, open access. It's just called practicing or it's going to be militant liturgies, practicing Christianity with Kierkegaard, Bonhoeffer and Vey, Simone Vey. And in there, I sort of walk through with Kierkegaard these different two churches he names. One is the church triumphant, and the other is the church militant. Now, in our language, we got to be real careful because militant sounds precisely like the Christian nationalists who are arming ready for the apocalypse and going to go storm the Capitol, right? What Kierkegaard meant was the church triumphant are those who think they've already got it, Hmm. right? So that's the right belief, the certainty crowd. And of course, if you are certain and you've got the truth, why would you be humble? (laughs) Like it doesn't make any sense. It would be Mm -hmm. a epistemic and moral failure to consider the views of others who now are threatening to erode what is true and certain in your life and community. Yeah, it's a fortress mentality. You have the truth, your job, you've got your marching orders, you are to defend God's castle. Yes, it's already sorted. You don't need to consider whether the attackers might be right. All that yeah. is over, <laughs> and now our lives are on the line. And it, and if you think that you figured that out by your teens or your early twenties, then you are basically like you're robbing yourself yeah. of fifty plus years of experience, wherein you might learn more about the world. Yeah. About yourself or whatever. But see, notice everything you just said is premised on the idea, but there's a risk involved because not only might we be wrong, we might Mm -hmm. be misguided. We might be moving in the wrong direction. So again, it's not just about belief. It's about the course and shape and content of my life, right? But notice if you've got it handled, you're in that fortress. Part of the problem is if you started thinking, wait a minute. But the attackers, that's a thats a good point they're making. Now you're less good at defending the fortress. Yep. So it's really a, uh, the way I think of it is a self-protective theology, but it's self-protective, not in the name of Christian truth, but in the name of social power, in the name of voting blocks, to put it in more contemporary language, right? You don't split the community because you may not win the election. Yeah. I mean, Right. Uh, I would I would refer listeners to the authoritative versus nurturant religion episode with John Sanders, which is yes. basically all about this distinction. And I'll, I'll put a link in the notes. But Aaron, before we move on to the next 
point. I want to I want to get your thoughts on this. There is a weird thing going on now that I think might be novel in Western history. So Kierkegaard, of course, had the State Church of Denmark. There have been state churches of England. There's even one of Canada and Australia, mm-hmm. I think, uh, technically, although their power has has waned. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there have been state Catholicism in many other European countries. And we've never had a state church in America. That's kind of right. one of our claims to fame. And it's mm-hmm. one that seems like one of the wiser things that the mm-hmm. that the founding fathers decided on. But now what we're seeing, and, and again, David French has chronicled this really well. Actually, we have a new kind of two churches in a sense, which is that the church of the conservative Christian nationalist boomers, silent generation, and you know a handful of younger folks, those churches are actually growing now in numbers because it is becoming a kind of de facto cultural state church. That's right. French talks about how evangelicals he talked to say it's now easier for them to invite their fellow conservative friends to church. They're having more friends come to church with them, mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. commitments to Christ in this kind of God and country evangelical mm-hmm. context and non-denominational churches are not shrinking right now overall. Mm-hmm. Now they are bleeding members of youth and people of color, mm-hmm. but they are making up for them with mm-hmm. new attending and identifying white evangelical Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think that's a fresh phenomenon. I mean, I'm not a student of American history. Perhaps there have been times like that, mm-hmm. but to have it split into two so even camps and one is becoming radically de-churched and unchurched. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we're seeing in this deconstruction, deconversion, yeah. ex-evangelical movement. And yeah. the other is becoming increasingly churched, but in this context, this yeah. particular context. What do you think about that? No, I think it's fascinating. And this speaks to the idea that, you know, Kierkegaard's other option is the militant church, right? The church militant, which of course is fighting against the hegemony of the social power structure. Yeah. So it's not surprising. I mean, again, what would that look like for us? Well, it would look like William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, mm-hmm. right? And again, what's interesting about this is it's not exclusively about politics. I know conservative listeners would say that's ridiculous. It's just political. But the point is you could envision this inverted, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's not that there's something necessary about conservative commitments as opposed to progressive commitments that then make the churches map out that way. It has to do with which is wanting to stabilize, reinforce, and double down on historical power, and which one is wanting to say, but who have we left out, right? That question, in principle, should be able to be asked by all people, regardless of their political vision. And I actually, you know, I I am definitely not a conservative, but increasingly, I find people like uh, David Brooks, who I disagree with in all kinds of ways, to be making this point. I like, love him, man. Right? I just I've gone from I've gone from saying, yeah, he's to my right. I don't know to just oh, I just fucking love the guy. I don't he, care if he's to my right on it on things. You know what? I just the, you know I can't do without him now. No, because his commitment is to solidarity and kindness. Even when I would say, yeah, but the policy choice that you support is not kind to these people, he would say. Well, no, it's actually in the name of kindness that I disagree with you on your policy, right? The, mm-hmm. the thing that we are disagreeing about is not actually the idea of, of, of human connectedness. It's not about 
loyalty as opposed to something else. He's saying, man, like, yeah, everything's secondary. All the politics is secondary because of this cultural clash. And you're right. Uh, I recently wrote an article, also open access, if anybody's interested, called Religious But Not Spiritual. <laughs> and I tried to invert and do a phenomenological reading of the spiritual but not religious or the nuns as a phenomenon. Yeah. And it was such a cool essay to write because what I argued following Kierkegaard, actually, is the idea that what we've done is allowed these, you know, largely uh, what boomer white evangelical types, though, again, I think it's complicated for demographic reasons. That crowd has basically become comfortable to abdicate spiritual existence in the name of a political religiosity that can gain assent from other conservatives regardless of Christ. So it's not surprising that you would then have, yeah, now you can invite people to these churches because what is it that they're saying yes to? Conservatism by the grace of God instead of Christ who will call us to task anytime we think our politics has now become Lord. Yeah. And that inversion is precisely the thing that I think Kierkegaard is navigating. It's the thing Bonhoeffer navigates when he says at one point he no longer can use the word God around religious people because mm. it doesn't mean what he means anymore. Right. Yeah. And that's what I'm finding now is man, yeah. <laughs> how do you, you know, what do I even say when I say, do you believe in God? I guarantee you we're talking about two different things. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's why I think, yeah, it's easy for non-religious people to now go to those churches because they're not getting the gospel, quote unquote. Right. Still within interpretation and hermeneutic space. What they're receiving yeah. is a reinforcement of their social identity as under assault by some other who needs to be guarded against as we wall in the fortress even more strongly. Wow. Yep. Thank you, Aaron. It's, it's nice to hear it back. <laughs> well, it's, and just, I will, it's a little, let, it's a confirming and it is, <laughs> it's encouraging, frankly, even though it's all very dark. Well, let me also uh, just endorse your recommendation of John Sanders work here. His, his book embracing prodigals, which is the one that you all discussed, yeah. I think is the single best book out there for explaining to people in churches, the kind of embodied logic by which uh, they find themselves on one or the other side of this culture war. Um, so yeah, let me just plug John yeah. Sanders embracing prodigals. It's fabulous. I teach it in my classes. John's actually one of my best friends. Uh, he just retired about an hour and a half away from oh, me. So nice. we go kayaking uh, together all the time. Hell so. yeah. He, I'd yeah. love to be friends with him in real life. <laughs> Loved that conversation. With He's him. also a one great basketball player. His fingers are oddly long. And okay. so, yes, we, we used to call him fingers uh, when we were on faculty together because he, he could just do crazy stuff with the basketball. Yeah. Old fingers Sanders over there. Um, <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> If you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It is $5 a month and patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes each month. And now that this podcast is basically coming out every other week, that's the way to have an episode roughly every week. The most recent 
patron episode is another response episode between myself and Tony Jones responding to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast created by Christianity Today. We are talking about the Bobby Knight episode uh, about Indiana basketball and the Red Sky at Dawn episode about Driscoll's uh, personal style with his with those who worked close with him, as well as the big Easter Sunday event that Mars Hill put on at Quest Field in Seattle, the uh, Seahawks and Sounders Stadium at that time. So uh, if you want to hear that or any of the other response episodes, you can join the Patreon and you have access to all the previous patron-exclusive episodes. There's also a Facebook group, which is for patrons only, and that is an awesome online community. So patreon.com slash dancoke if you're interested in that. And back to my conversation now about Kierkegaard with Aaron. So as we move into this third principle that Kierkegaard has to teach us, which I'll read, is Kierkegaard helps us see that Christian nationalism is antichrist. We, we've sort of been in this water, yep. but let, we'll talk a little bit more about it. I just want to want to throw something out to you that you don't have to pick it up and run with it, mm-hmm. but it just strikes me that it is it is a great irony of the history of Christianity in the world. There have been left wing totalitarian damaging yeah. states. You know, yes. I'm thinking of Mao. I'm thinking yes. of Stalin. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, uh, I think Pol Pot had a communist connection. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. My global history knowledge doesn't really go back before, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Kierkegaard's life much. But the ones that have used Christianity have always been right wing authoritarian if they've, if they've been, if they've been, you know, authoritarian kind of you know, really, really damaging, dare I say, evil regimes, you know, Hitler, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I I don't know if Mussolini used religious language, but I would be so surprised if he didn't Mm -hmm. being in Italy in the mid century, mid 20th century. And it is such I mean, and then of course there's the inquisition, there's the Holy Mm -hmm. Roman empire, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so the crusades, of course, it's so, so ironic. This is the kind of thing that Tripp would say, like, isn't it weird that anytime Christianity has been used toward an abuse of power, uh, it's been on that authoritarian right when Jesus was a itinerant homeless yeah. Jew who preached radical inclusivity yeah. like, and didn't care about money and, and like said, well, don't have a political revolution. Give to Caesar yeah. what is Caesar's. Yeah. It's like, how the hell? So I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> That is like, that is like a, a, I don't know if it's a psychology of religion question, if it's a sociology question, but it's one for the ages, whoever it is, whoever's job it is to answer that question, how Mm -hmm. that happened. But that, that just seems like maybe a way into this Christian nationalism is actually anti-Christ, although it's a bit of a historical one. So feel free to drop that where it is if you want. No, no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, the, and and again, I won't get too deep into the historical social political weeds because I too might say things that aren't exactly true on that. It's not my specialty, but one of the things that you're saying that is so profound, I think is, well, well, two things. One, it's important, especially for progressive activists today to realize that progressivism is not immune from the authoritarian totalitarian realities yeah. that we claim to be progressively fighting against. Right. Correct. And, and that is something I think that far too often 
goes unacknowledged in at least cultural discourse, right? I don't think that lots of people are running around confused by that, but it ends up being those people are the ones like, well, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. It it's power <laughs> that that is corrosively self-contained and self-protective. Left and right doesn't matter then, right? Yes. That's I mean, the worry. For instance, just to bring back point number one, it's about lived commitment, not right belief. And and a thing, this is the way that I, my favorite way of phrasing it is like, it doesn't matter to me and it shouldn't probably matter to almost anyone if you use the terms BIPOC and Latin X as yeah. opposed to the old terms, but you maintain the public school funding system of your city that disadvantages the Latinx and BIPOC communities mm -hmm. who go to the mm -hmm. shitty funded schools, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Like that is, that's lived commitment and yeah. saying the right vocab is right yeah. belief. It's yeah. not, you know what I mean? It's not a real commitment. Oh, yeah. And so we can right. get on the left, we can get into this too, that it's about, it's simply about right belief, not lived commitment because actually being willing to risk our privilege, yeah. if that's one of our moral axes, as it is for me and I think most listeners of this show, well, that's a, that takes an actual sacrifice. Changing yeah. your language and making sure you're not offending people with the current verbiage. And current verbiage is sometimes really important. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm mm -hmm. not a crusader against evolving language norms. Right, right. You know, if I have a transgender client, I will use whatever pronouns they want. Like I right. who cares? But yeah. that is not the same as yeah. a lived commitment to justice. It's just getting your words right so that your privilege is not revoked by you being canceled or yeah. thought less of by people, losing your physical capital, your economic mm -hmm. capital, mm -hmm. or your social capital, yep. whatever you no. happen to have. That's exactly right. It it's tricky. There was an old debate. Uh this is a, a technical sidebar, but I think it's relevant. There was an old debate between Martha Nussbaum and Judith Butler, where Martha Nussbaum basically, you know, represents kind of strong um, progressive liberalism in a kind of grand sort of style. And Judith Butler represents much more this, you know, intersectional queer theoretical, you know, move. Now, where I stand is they're both right. So again, the, the, you know, my, my view is they're both right. They're both saying important things. Let's find a way to put in practice the things that are countenanced in Butler's theory. 100%. But there was this big debate between them where Nussbaum was like getting frustrated by the fact that all these grad students basically were getting all excited and stirred up by, you know, reading these books by people like Butler and others. And she was like, yeah, but, but you're not changing the lives of women in India. Right. You're writing sexier dissertations. <laughs> so, so how is it we translate that into some sort of praxis? You're learning a language game. You're learning yeah. the rules of a particular language game, which enshrines your own privilege and capital, be it economic or social. And and it's it's, of course, you know, complicated for two white dudes to think about these things in constructive ways. But it's important that all of us be able to say is my attempt to stand for the marginalized actually a way of making myself feel better about the fact that I'm not one of the fools who doesn't, yeah. right? Or am I actually making things better for those people? And uh, Richard Rorty, famous 20th century philosopher, uh, I was giving a talk years and years, years ago, and Rorty was in the audience. <laughs> and <laughs> he stood up after my talk and he says, look, 
I just don't get all this continental postmodern stuff. Let's say you're right about all of it. How does it make tomorrow better than today for people who are struggling? And I have spent 20 years of my career trying to sit with that question and hopefully write books and live a life that is trying to meet that challenge. And I think most days I fail. That's a question worth trying to answer, though. That's great. It's it's hard. And this is exactly what we mean. We think about Christian nationalism as anti-Christ. It's an easy point. What is Christ? Whatever your specific theology, again, I, I, as a Christian, I'm happy to get in the weeds of technical theology, but I'm also trying to say for people who aren't theologically inclined, don't dismiss Kierkegaard because he's still speaking to the existential commitments that transcend things like specificity of religious commitments and traditions. Yeah. What is Christ? Christ names the idea that reality is maximally revealed as other-oriented relational love. Now, the idea that this is also the incarnate Son of God just double downs on that point. It's not in tension with it. That makes it, oh, so you mean the absolute power of reality is the homeless first-century Jew who is in fact— That just makes it even more profound, not less, when you then make it confessionally articulate. Yeah. So what is nationalism? A rejection of the idea that humility, like we talked about in our other point, that humility is necessary for Christian living. Nationalism says, no, all we need is not only right belief and certainty— not only loyalty that evades all the propagandists trying to fool us into their worldview, not a humility and hospitality to the people who are saying, but wait a minute, we also need the power to silence their objections so that we get to live in comfort, unconcerned about their continued onslaught, right? Yeah. And that's the problem. Nationalism, and this is why Make, a great, make America Great Again was so such a dangerously idolatrous phrasing, right? Of course, we want countries to be successful in the sense of flourishing for all their inhabitants, right? Who wouldn't want to make America great in that sense? But it's like Derrida says in this really cool essay on the other heading, where he says, the only reason to be a European nationalist in this sense is because the ideals upon which, in his case, Europe were founded, are ideals of showing hospitality even to the enemies of Europe. Wow. Talk about now a cool reading of give me your tired, your hungry, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. We say we are going to make America the greatest country on earth because we will be defined by the greatest hospitality, the greatest inclusion, the greatest openness, and the greatest table fellowship. Not to make others look bad, but because we want to model that as the virtue worth emulating by others. Mm-hmm. Then, heck yeah, give me a MAGA hat. <laughs> if that's what we mean, <laughs> that's what it means. I'm yeah. in. It doesn't mean that, right? Yeah. And and that's I think anti-Christian, idolatrous, and devastatingly dangerous to the faith that I was raised into. And like I told somebody, you probably agree with this. It's not that young people are leaving the church or leaving Christianity. What's happening is they're just actually taking seriously what you taught them. Right. Yep. And I they can't that's a big, reconcile big part it, of it anymore. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to move on from Christian nationalism just because I think we have we have we've treated it sort of throughout the episode, and yeah, I want to make it, sure we have time for these last old. two. Yeah. So we have kind of been dancing around this one as we talk about sort of financial stability and comfort at the cost of of others' suffering, mm-hmm. or at least in indifference to others' suffering, no matter if you want to, if you're less confident in the the causal connection between. Mm-hmm our comfort and their and their suffering. Kierkegaard shows what it means to seek faithfulness rather than success. Yeah. We haven't really talked about this at an individual level. So can you flesh that out for us, please? Yeah. So Kierkegaard in Fear and Trembling says one of the great things about the Greeks is that they understood faith was a task for a lifetime. It wasn't the thing you get baptized into and now have, right? He says, because what would it mean to go further than faith? Where would you go? <laughs> right? What, what's this other thing you're trying to seek? And throughout his entire authorship, what he provides for us is a radical invitation to be what I would uh, describe as led properly by someone you trust, right? How are we led properly by someone we trust? Now, we could see dangerous ways of this being led poorly by an untrustworthy someone like Trump. But what he's doing here is actually talking about the idea of if you're humble enough to say, hey, I don't have it all figured out, as he puts it repeatedly in his work, in relation to God, it is edifying to realize you're always wrong, (laughs) right? Because then your own sense of stuff ain't going to get you very far, right? And when we realize that fact, now kenosis becomes not just I've emptied my own status, but now I recognize, well, what it looks like to be invested in lived commitment, in fear and trembling toward a God who commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Say that last sentence again, but without any theological jargon. Kenosis, lived commitment. Just just rephrase that in ordinary language. Not a problem. Kierkegaard helps us understand that if you claim God is a servant, that God shows up, you know, again, whether metaphorically or literally in a manger, doesn't seek possessions, walks around with the outcasts of society and thinks that that's in fact where grace is to be found. If you think that's God, then you've got to rethink what your to-do list looks like relative to life. (laughs) Right. So I was, okay. I was feeling, I was feeling truly inspired until you got to to to-do list. And then I just kind of, then I just was feeling delighted in your, uh, (laughs) your common man, you know, uh, retelling of it, but no, that's so good. Uh, So sorry. I'm sorry for keep going. No, that that's the, the idea. I gave a TEDx talk a few years ago, just called the failure of success. And it was all about this point. And the idea is this, and, and again, we're talking, everything I'm suggesting is Kierkegaardian, but again, if you want to hear like the textual data and wrestle through the places where he works this out, come join the class with Tripp and I. Um, here, I'm kind of giving these you know 30,000 foot view pictures, but the idea runs like this. All of us have to-do lists and they're important. I tell my students, you got to have to-do lists. What are you trying to get done today? Let's make progress towards those goals. Yeah. But all the really important stuff, 
the really important stuff by which our life will be narrated when we're on our deathbed probably was not on a to-do list in a way that allowed for checking it off. So for example, get my PhD, check, write a book, check, right? Th those are cool things and they were important to have on my to-do list. But when I'm at my deathbed, my list will look more like, was I faithful as a husband and father? Savored right? God's gifts to me, savored my time with my children and my friends and my wife. Yep. And you can never check things, the box. Oh, right? I sufficiently savored it. Done. <laughs> I, <laughs> consider <laughs> consider Soren savored. We're good. Handled. It, if, if you yeah. think like, you know, being a good father. It's yeah. like, there are days, and I'm sure you've experienced this, where you nail it, right? And it usually involves ice cream and trampoline parks. Not whole days, but there are portions <laughs> of days, maybe. You, you, you crush could attest it. to that, yeah. And you're like, done. I've done it. Yes. The best thing we can do if we are a success minded person is now like immediately like George Costanza, throw our hands up and walk out and say, thank you. And good night and leave our families because hmm. we don't want to now go into tomorrow because we're going to mess it up again. <laughs> so faithfulness means, am I invested so deeply in this as meaningful, as significant and worthy of my finitude? that I will get out of bed every day and recognize I will not complete it today, but I'm going to keep on charging, keep on trying. And that's what we see, I think, in Kierkegaard's idea of faithfulness. He talks about works of love. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, I did that last Tuesday at 3 p.m. I'm good now. Like, I really what? loved him as myself, man. I, I, I totally completed that task. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And right. Kierkegaard's whole theory of selfhood is becoming. So the way I often talk about this is I think Kierkegaard can be summarized as you are who you are becoming. Hmm. Well, one of the problems is a lot of us kind of take solace in the fact that, well, we're still young. I'll get my act together later. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, once I'm out of college, then I'll not do this stuff anymore. But the problem is, no, if you say I'll fix that later, I'll be that person. Then you now have instantiated the person who will never be that person because all of your behaviors, all your habits, all of your identity continues to seek the box checking kind of life. And this is what we feed our college students, by the way, also other groups. But my goodness, show me a university who's not saying some version of the following. Come here, we'll give you real world experience so that you can go out and have transferable skills to be successful in your career. That's what they sell. Yeah. What Kierkegaard reminds us is, the real world is defined by idolatry, temptation towards self-loving, a rejection of the other, a idea of human dignity as couched in your RO or your 403B status. Like, screw that real world. It's defined by supremacy and misogyny and transphobia. Like, no, I don't want that world. So instead, Kierkegaard's authorship invites us into experiences, into living that remind us we get to make the world real. So what world you wanna make, right? This is this co-creative with God in freedom kind of message, but somehow we don't like that because now notice I can't lord it over someone else that I got the new iPhone 
if that's not something people think makes you cool, <laughs> right? So it's not saying don't go get the iPhone, whatever. It's that you think you're better now because of that. Or, oh, you've got the bigger house. Hmm. I'm a fan more of like Macklemore, uh, the rapper. You, you remember Macklemore, right? Oh, yeah, I'm In- Seattle guy. Yeah. Uh, See, in his uh, song Thrift Shop, he's got this line that I think is so Kierkegaardian. He's talking about going to a thrift shop, buying thrift shop clothes, right? (laughs) And he says, (laughs) uh, you know, go buy the pro wings, make them cool, sell those. The sneakerheads be like, oh, he got the Velcros. (laughs) Now, what's he doing? He said, the thing that your mama gave to Goodwill because you wouldn't wear anymore I'm going to go buy those and rock them and invert your system of value. Mm-hmm. And because I'm able to now model confidence nested in humility and live with what I think Maya Angelou exemplifies as style, right? When you live with style, what you now have done is said, everybody now is jealous of your Velcro pro ranks instead of making you feel bad because you can't afford something else. Mm -hmm. That's precisely what I see when Jesus meets the woman at the well and says, Hey, I'm not condemning you. (laughs) Right. Who, who is it? Who do you think I am? I'm here to say, go thrive, go flourish. But we live in a society that not only celebrates STEM, but celebrates STEM book or science, technology, engineering, math, all so long as it services business. Mm. And what Kierkegaard does is says, that's just the establishment economically construed. What would it look like to say, yeah, go seek whatever you think gives your life meaning. If you really damn want to go get super wealthy, go rock it. Just don't expect anybody else to think you're better because of that. Right? Yeah, that's that connects with me because this, this is a tension that I – am navigating and continuing to have to navigate more and more. You know, when I was younger, I was successful in the millennial experiential definition of success, Mm -hmm. which was the operant one in my 20s. And the fact that I was in a band and got to travel the world and play in front of thousands of people, that was the highest currency because we were all in our 20s and nobody really had any money yet or anything like that. For me, sometimes Kierkegaard, this this idea of Kierkegaard rubs up against a way that I read Aristotle, which is mm-hmm. like a bit more of a moderate kind of, well, let's pump the brakes a little bit. We want some money. We want some notoriety. We want some respect in the community. We don't want to be a slave to that money or that respect or that notoriety. Yeah. But actually, life is better with some amount of money and comfort and whatever, right? And there is a there's a radicalness to the call of Jesus, which I think Kierkegaard embodies much better than Aristotle embodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I I'm I'm honestly of two minds about it. You know, there is there is a part of me that's still the punk rock Jesus seventeen year old <laughs> who wants to smash the system mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of the poor and marginalized. And then there's the part of me that is mostly who I am day to day, which is spending. Over, you know, spending six figures on a doctoral degree so that I can charge three figures an hour uh, to genuinely help people, I think. And it's, I, 
I am already just completely loving working with clients, mm -hmm. which I, I have, I'm already getting to do as part of my training. And I have a mortgage on a house mm -hmm. in a comfortable and safe neighborhood yep. overlooking some beautiful trees in an expensive city. Yep. And, you know, it's it's a it's a tension. Yes. Uh, and I've not arrived. But some of the ways that you phrased Kierkegaard's version of Jesus's call hurt because I they don't line up with the way mm -hmm. that I'm doing things. And then other ways of like you know, follow your actual values and your mm -hmm. whatever. Well, okay. I am, I am being, I'm, I'm imperfectly conscientious about those things and, yeah. Yeah. and making decisions with our resources yeah. and our property and whatever we've got mm -hmm. our privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That one's, it's tough. I, I'm, I, the, the most honest thing I can say is I'm of two minds. And some days I think the, the radical call to Christ likeness is the absolute pinnacle and that whatever form of existence comes after this one or even during this one will mm -hmm. flush that out will will bear that out yeah that that's really the way to live that it's it's really the saintly sort of you know saint francis mm -hmm. teresa of calcutta way and then yeah. other days i think no those are some religious zealots with <laughs> an imbalanced personality uh who are, are you know, and Aristotle is closer to the truth. And can yeah. I do an Aristotelian thing with Christ imbued values? And then some days I think that's sellout and that's bullshit and you can't do that. And I don't know what the answer is. That's where I'm at. So, so what you've described can be, I think, framed in multiple ways. One, we might frame it as this is why Christian realism of Reinhold Niebuhr is so compelling. Hmm. His view is basically, yeah, we're called to live in the eschaton, but this ain't the eschaton. So it's not an excuse. It's a recognition of where we are, right? It's kind of like saying, oh, if only we were at that uh, waterfall, then we'd be swimming. And you're like, so put on your bathing suit and jump into the sand. Like, but, but you, you aren't there yet, right? right? So let's keep walking, not swim, not because swimming is not the goal, but because we're not yet in the space where that becomes possible. So the kingdom, the description of the kingdom of heaven is accurate, yes. but it is not in, it's not practically, gosh, it sounds like such a cop-out. It's mm -hmm. not practically realizable until that next age. We, we yep. do like the way I've thought about this when I am feeling less like I'm, you know, making excuses for myself, because I think there's also an evangelical white savior missionary complex in this oh, yeah. for me as well as the, yeah, yeah. as the former sincere adherent of the youth group culture, which was a very good thing overall for me. Like youth group mm -hmm. was really good, mm -hmm. better than my Christian schooling for sure. Mm -hmm. But there's a part of me too. That's like, Oh, like, of course I'll be the Shane Claiborne. Right. I'll be right. the guy who goes and visits mother Teresa. And you know what I realized? I'm not that guy. Yeah. I'm the guy with a bad back who needs to make sure all the chairs are comfortable in my house. I'm not <laughs> going to Calcutta in yep. sitting on wood benches. Like, I mean, it's not going to happen. Yep. So, the one way I've thought of it is like, well, what is north on our moral and value-laden compass? Mm -hmm. What's north on it? Is it Jesus right. or is it the kingdom of heaven or is it something else? Is it like, no, dude, that's bullshit for the – like, you know, we could take the the Nietzsche approach from – the uh, from the genealogy of morals, like no, that's the slave revolt. That's what yeah. poor and powerless people think 
they want to make everyone else believe that that's true north because it makes them feel okay with the fact that they're not the overman. Yep. They're not yep. the superman. And then it's like, no, no, no. I I actually think that is true north that self-giving love, kenosis, self-emptying love is the is the highest moral value in the universe yeah. as evidenced by the Christian tradition. Yep. But I like that Niebuhr pragmatism of like, but all I can do is go north-ish. I yeah. can't, it's not a, the pole, the North Pole is not accessible to me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but can I head north as I zigzag left and right, east and west, you know, that yeah, yeah. kind of a thing, which also makes me feel good. And then I'm suspicious of feeling good about feeling it. Good. And then I'm suspicious <laughs> of my it. guilt of, of being suspicious of feeling good. Cause is that a white savior complex that That's was right. drilled into me that was ignoring my privilege? Anyway, right. it's a complete it's, mess. No, you're, you're exactly right. And again, this is one of those spots where we all you and I benefit from the important work done by social justice organizations and activists that are reminding us of, of how blind privilege makes us and how implicit bias really is. And yet there's a temptation to say, Oh, well, there's nothing I can do to ever be good right? Which is the dangerous side of Kierkegaard's, the edifying is that we're always in the wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, why try, right? And I think Kierkegaard, one of the things towards the very end of his life that is really hard, and anybody who reads him seriously has to wrestle with this, he almost becomes misanthropic toward the very end of his life. And some say this is because he's already suffering from certain kinds of illnesses and he, like Nietzsche, was already kind of losing something and really kind of, you know, taking a slide. And others, and I side with this other reading, say, no, this is the necessary consequence of the life that he had lived fighting the battles he had fought, right? And the question is, how is it that you find hope in a context where there's no real good reason to have hope anymore? I mean, what does it look like to be hopeful for American democracy in a time where roughly half, I mean, thankfully, it's slightly less than half now, but roughly half of the country think the vaccine is you know, useless and COVID's a hoax and that all this is fine, and yet their own family members are dying. And in some cases, they are themselves on ventilators and struggling to live and yet still claiming to the doctor it's not COVID because COVID doesn't exist, right? It's something else. You're lying to me. We've somehow allowed that to be where we are. And we, we've so, I think, lost the ability to see the other person as equally legitimate, <laughs> right? As a, a image bearer of God, to speak in Christian language, we instead don't see them as a neighbor. We only see them as competition for my status, for my position, for my place. And I don't know what the way forward is on this. Again, Kierkegaard's not an instruction manual for how to live, but I do think he invites us to wrestle with the tensions, the paradoxes, the problems that we would be wrong to ignore. Right. But I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm actually, you know, I, I speak to corporations and, and companies and I'm sort of kind of writing a book with a friend of mine who's a finance professor about personal finance, the title of which is uh, tentatively personal finance for Marxists, philosophy majors, and everybody else who spends too much time at coffee shops. 
right? Because that, that it's, right, it's a great time. I mean, that, that idea is because here's the thing, as much as you might wish capitalism looked different or as much as you wish that it were a different space or whatever, you know what? You're still got to pay a mortgage this month. And if your kids are going to go to camp or eat, right, or in sad, in most cases, you have health care, you're going to have to find money to do this. And what we now you know, recognize as essential workers are sadly, given that we're the richest country in the history of the world, our essential workers are just often people who do not have the financial flexibility or freedom not to have to go to work when everybody else can take off. So that's a moral failure for which all of us share some responsibility. But at the same time, Rage Against the Machine charges for their tickets when they perform. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, the tension is real. I mean, Kierkegaard was able to write what he wrote because his dad left him a huge inheritance and he didn't have to go to work. He was able to hire like three and four different secretaries to help him do this unbelievable output that he produced. He decided not to get married, which is a complicated story all its own, which we talk about uh, Tripp and I on the the class. But he, he gave up getting married so that he could pursue exclusively this mode of living, which was lonely and socially outcast, miserable, isolated. I mean, Those who spend the most time thinking about how to live well, rarely live well, (laughs) right? Because the people living well ain't writing books about existentialism. They're playing music and going fishing and hanging out with their kids. Right. So finding some way to say, all right, how can we learn from Kierkegaard that faithfulness is about at the end of our life? What do we want said of us? What is the story that we want to have done the best we can to author with whatever agency we had available? And I'll be honest, when I think about my father, who I love and respect, you know, I I don't think, man, sure loved his truck back in the day. (laughs) Right. I do think, man, he was an amazing painter. Right. He's so good at this thing. But I also think, well, would I rather have, you know, seven of his paintings or go camping with him? I'll take camping. You can burn mm. the paintings, even though I don't want to do that. Right. I want both. <laughs> but there's something about that faithfulness. And it's saying, what's my to do list? I now tell my students when they leave class. <laughs> all right. All of them have to do lists. Right. And we all should. And this is an important behavior and just adult living. I say, all right, what's on your to do list today? That is just about finding joy, Hmm. period. And I'm saying, go ahead and check it off. If it's a milkshake, if it's a conversation with a friend, a walk around the lake, whatever it is, put it on and check it off. But what you're starting to make habitual is the idea that joy, living joyfully, is not something to check off. It's something to remind yourself that in the midst of the trauma of human existence, Joy is also conditioned by that trauma, right? It's not a justification. It's not a theodicy. It's simply recognizing as bad as it gets. And boy, the last 15 months and four years have been bad. And of course, then Black Lives Matters activists would rightly say, well, yeah, but notice white folk, 
you're now realizing the existential trauma that has been experienced for over 400 years by yeah, people. Yeah, the last 400 years have been pretty bad too. It, right? So that's right. where we've got to be really careful not to think like, oh, finally we get this trauma. Yeah. Like, no, we were protected from it in lots of ways because of the historical injustice and not seeing other people. So what does Kierkegaard say? And I'll, I'll anticipate it for you. The last of the, what he can teach us, Kierkegaard stresses the radical inclusivity of Christ's call, come all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That is, I think, the sort of trinity of Christian virtue. Where did we start, right? Gratitude. Then we went to humility. And now we're landing in hospitality, right? This is, in my opinion, sort of a Kierkegaardian version of what Anne Lamott calls her three favorite players or uh, prayers help thanks wow yeah (laughs) that's everything but yet we've somehow allowed Kierkegaard to be this irrational fideist who is drawing us away from the core virtues of Christianity who fought the church rather than submitting to those who God has appointed who reminded us about context and perspective rather than pointing to the objective universal absolute truth of the gospel Man, what if we instead said, Soren invites us to take seriously what everyone else takes for granted in a context where their privilege, their location, and their histories make that possible? Yeah. Right? And so as far as I'm concerned, why should people read Kierkegaard? What can Kierkegaard say to us today? You're human. Don't forget that. And everybody else is too. And God thought that it was a good thing to be human. To be human, right? yeah. That freaking rocks. That That it's is incredible. So, again, it's a crappy hardcore song, but it's a great sermon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's a sermon that says, keep your pastor appreciation trips to the beach and brand new Lincolns or whatever they give now. Back when I was growing up, everybody wanted Lincolns for some reason. You can keep that. H- how is it that we can find a way to say, no one within our community will be in need without us breaking for them. And to me, nothing's obvious, but it's hard not to see those moments in scripture inviting us to see the widow, the orphan, the stranger as in fact, the face of Christ. And so Kierkegaard, a melancholy, Danish, miserable, isolated guy who was picked on in the press and rejected by the church might actually be a pretty good traveling companion. And that's why Tripp and I are inviting people to come walk with Kierkegaard and us as we try to figure out what it looks like to walk as humans, all too human, but recognize that this walk is not about getting to the mountaintop. It's about recognizing that the walk was already worth it. Well, Aaron, I wish I had enough margin in my life in this these days during uh, grad school and internship to join this reading group. I haven't been able to do any of those since starting school. I look forward to uh, after three three plus years from now being able to do something like this with you guys. If any of this sounded like a good introduction to a few weeks of your life and, and, and diving into some texts with a group and with a couple people who know it well, 
you should follow that link in the notes to iheartkierkegaard.com and sign up for the group. Uh, is this one pay what you want? Yeah, pay what you it, can? it's yep. pay, pay what you can, what you want. Um, yeah. So we want to make sure everybody knows it is entirely fine to pay nothing. If that is hard for you, don't pay a thing. Yeah. If you can and you want to support the program, the the work that Trip is doing, of course, that helps him keep doing these sorts of things. And I'm stunned by the amount of work that you and he and many others are doing to produce regular content. I mean, I've got to does more work than I do. That's well, sure. it's yeah. I mean, I've got a YouTube video, a YouTube channel, if anybody's interested, just called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. And it, it's exhausting just posting, you know, four to five minute little videos of myself talking about like trout fishing and God, you know, so <laughs> I'm stunned by the work y'all do. But yeah, absolutely free. We want anybody to come that wants to donations welcomed, encouraged, but not required. We've also got some cool giveaways, which we're really stoked about. When you register for the class, you can also register to win all of Kierkegaard's authorship, like the complete yeah. authorship. I don't even own that. <laughs> so yeah, Trip, I, Trip I, was like, "Hey, you should uh, <laughs> you should sign up for this thing. You know, at least sign up for the giveaway." Yep. And I was like, "Dude, I'm tr- I need to get books out of my house, not I, into my house at this point." It is I beautiful have, though. It's beautiful gorgeous. Set. I've tried so hard to collect all of them. I'm still well shy of yeah. the complete set, but we're giving yeah. away a complete set. And moreover, we're also giving away selected books from the new Kierkegaard Research series at Lexington Books. Uh, cool. And that series is amazing. Some wonderful secondary work coming out of there. And so we've gotten them to donate some books that we're giving away to participants. So it's going to be a great time. It's six weeks long, but you don't have to do them live. They'll, of course, be available to you. You can do them at your own pace. You can do them a year from now, whatever, whatever works for you. Three um, years from now, maybe whenever, we'll get a yeah. new group three years from now uh, that, that want to do it with me where we watch the videos at the same time and text it's, each other. <laughs> we, we would love it. Uh, there will be welcome questions. We're going to be talking, hopefully, to lots of individuals who are sending questions and try to make the last few episodes very question heavy from the yeah, audience. Cool. We may even do a live Q&A uh, for one of our final sessions. So that's a very trip thing to do. Live important. Q&A with copious beer. Yes, I, I first time Trip and I ever met in person was at a uh, progressive youth leaders event, and it was mm. Tony Jones and Trip um, yeah. hosting it. And they invited me up to do an interview for a live homebrewed. You know, I'd never yeah. been on homebrew before. <clears throat> Showed up, you know, and here I was, this college professor who you know does a lot of speaking, but yet. I'm going to what I thought was a conference and, you know, I'm being interviewed. And so I showed up like ready for this conference interview. <laughs> Little and did he, you know. He walks in and he's like, all right, give me about half an hour. All the kegs are getting delivered. And yeah. so the whole room was like around the edges were kegs. Yeah. Uh, we ended the night with this big sing-along, which was absolutely bizarre. Every time I said anything even slightly technical, Tony and Trip would both like gag and play a drinking game where now I had to say it without any technical words. Like it was a hoot. And as a result, he and I became good friends and now have done several other homebrewed episodes together. And uh, that led to the Kierkegaard class. So yeah, if, if you want to have some fun thinking about stuff that matters, I think that this is a good place to spend some time and we're going to do our best to make it something that people really enjoy. It's awesome. That's great. Well, there's also a lot of other things in the show notes here. I, I'm just going to do the outro while, I, while I've still got you on the line here, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, we have links for Pollution and the Death of Man, David Foster Wallace, This is Water, 
uh, Heather Griffin's Bible Truths episode, the Aaron's Paper Militant Liturgies, the Authoritative versus Nurturant episode, Aaron's Religious but Not Spiritual paper, Sanders' book, Embracing Prodigals, Aaron's TEDx talk, The Failure of Success, and Aaron's YouTube philosophy channel. So thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation and for chasing down all those links so that I don't have to. And uh, you can join the Patreon for five bucks a month to get uh, two exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That's patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And that link is in the notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. And Aaron, thank you for your time. Oh my gosh. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to everybody who stuck around for all of this conversation, I hope it's been well worth your time. And, uh, Let's all live in faithfulness and do the best we can to help each other live well. Amen. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.